0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Thank you for leading us in that beautiful song. Um, Just reminded, and our text this morning, my name is Robert, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome, Crosspoint. Welcome, Mitri. Our text this morning uh, has so much to say about our hope. As Jeremy prayed uh, after reading Psalm 80, uh, 84, as we just think and look ahead to what a friend we have in Jesus, and, and our hope being in him, and his love for us that he himself actually has promised to return for us, to bring him to himself, uh, to even bring us into his father's house. Uh, I can't help but think of a brother in the Lord, uh, John Russell, who this past Thursday went to be with the Lord, he, he himself opened the gift that only Jesus can give to his saints. And he sits and dwells with the Lord even now. And I, I, just, I keep thinking about that, and I'm so encouraged by the life and testimony of John. Many of you uh, surely knew him. He and Brenda uh, have often sat right over here. Uh, until their, their health made it a little difficult for them to be here on a regular basis. Uh, but John did pass away on Thursday. The funeral will be tomorrow uh, at 11 a.m. at McMullen. Uh, visitation will precede that at 10 a.m. Brad will be uh, overseeing that service. But let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to open our eyes as we come to this text. Let's ask the Lord to care for his saints, and especially to comfort John's wife, Brenda. And, uh, and we'll, we'll hear from the Lord's word. Um, Father, I, I thank you for... Uh, Your faithfulness, Uh, anytime one of your saints enters into your kingdom, it is a testimony not so much of their faithfulness, but of yours. It is a testimony not so much of their love for you, though that is certainly true, but it is a testimony of your love for them. And your love for all those who trust in Christ, for all those who rest in him, who consider him to be their friend. Father, I pray that you would encourage us this morning as we hear from your word, I pray that you would encourage Brenda Russell, even now. Uh, She misses her husband, certainly. But as she also longs and looks forward to an eager anticipation, your coming kingdom, I pray that we would all do the same. Uh, That we would long for you with eyes of faith. And we ask that now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our text this morning is John chapter 14. We've been working through the gospel of John here for the last... I don't know, forever. And, uh, and so today we come to a really, a really critical text in the middle of this gospel, uh, one with a very profound uh, phrase, I suppose, uh, that many of you will recognize, in which Jesus declares himself to be the way and the truth and the life. Uh, this is a pinnacle text in this book, and I'm really, really looking forward to working through it with you. I'm going to read the text I want to comment along the way, and then we'll conclude with a few uh, impressions uh, that, uh, that I've gathered from it. John chapter 14, starting in verse 1, Jesus is speaking. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let's pause there. He's talking to his disciples, and if you remember from last week, Jesus has been, this is actually in the middle of a conversation that he's having with his disciples, the men who have given everything away to follow him, here at the end of his life, and the cross is getting only closer and closer. His disciples are gravely concerned. He he has to comfort and encourage them, and he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Why? Would this be the case? What is causing the troubling of their hearts? Over the course of this book, really, and then especially in this past chapter 13, Jesus has been preparing them or hinting at the surety that he is going to leave them. It's a major thread woven through John's gospel. John chapter 7, verses 33 and 34, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. John eight twenty one. I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And then most recently, John chapter 13, verse 33, but also 36, here in this conversation, Jesus tells his disciples specifically, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come in this moment. I mean, think of where Jesus is heading. He himself is going to the cross, and what he says to his disciples is, don't let your hearts be troubled. I mean, this is how concerned they are, and I don't think it's by by hopping off of a fishing boat, leaving their dad, and waving goodbye. They, they have given up everything all at once to follow Jesus. And, and the history of their relationship with Jesus as his disciples has been one of constantly being able to even encourage to follow him. I am going to the cross. I am preparing to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. And none of you can follow me in that. Or at least none of you can follow me in that and live. Uh, and, and then beyond that, where, where is he going? Uh, they're, they're, these are the questions that the disciples are asking. There's also this added angst over Peter's imminent denial. That's how chapter 13 concludes. Peter says, no, we'll follow you. I'll follow you to death. And Jesus says, are you sure about that? We're coming up on a moment where over the course of 24 hours, you, you will deny me three times. And this is Peter we're talking about. Uh, he, he's he's one, of the, one of the top three disciples. And if it's not, why is it not? Do we long for Jesus in, in his absence the way the disciples here were dreading his absence? Do you understand? I mean, you can feel, it, I mean, it is palpable how much concern they have over Jesus' lesion for their troubled hearts. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way, or excuse me, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. It's it's an incredible response that Jesus gives his disciples. Uh, Here, in one of their darkest moments, in one of the final few moments they get face to face with their Lord, Jesus seeks to comfort their troubled hearts. This is his aim. This is what he sets out to do here in chapter 14. He wants to give them reassurance, he wants to comfort them, knowing the despair that they are facing. And where does his instruction for their troubled hearts begin? It begins with the word believe. It begins with the word believe. Now, some translators will look at verse 1 here, and and they translate it, and I think this is certainly legitimate. They will say, you you do believe in God. Believe also in me. So it's as if he's saying, hey, you know, you believe in God, uh, which is also very often shorthand for God the Father. Believe also in me. And whatever the case is, this is where Jesus begins is faith, belief in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. This is where the, 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 the calm for their troubled hearts begins. And We have more to say about this here in a minute. But, but first, I think it's just worth noting, this is where it starts. This is where it begins. And then Jesus proceeds to explain two things. Uh, and and this is the emphasis of the next few few sentences because this is what the disciples repeatedly ask him about. He he proceeds to tell them where he's going, and the way to get there. So first the where in chapter or excuse me in verses two and three in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Where is he going? He's going to his father's house. Let's pause here. This isn't, this isn't just generic, you know, heaven. I mean, Jesus could have said that. But he does not say heaven. He doesn't say, I'm going to my father's kingdom. He doesn't say, I'm going to the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, I'm going to heaven. He specifically says, I'm going to my father's house. This isn't some unknown place. This isn't some secret place. Jesus doesn't say, look, I'm going to a secure location. You don't have to worry about me. I'll tell you more later. He doesn't say that. He tells them, I'm going to my father's house. He brings the disciples in on this. What's notable about his father's house is that it, it has many rooms. And my father's house are many rooms. And as Jesus reveals this to his disciples, he is so clear to tell them, there is plenty of space here for you. I'm going to my father's house. This isn't a little two-bedroom apartment. This is a mansion. And in this mansion is space for every single one of my disciples. Every single one. And not only are they just sort of generic rooms, you know, all beige walls and no artwork on the wall. No, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. As I just think about this text, sometimes I think it's good to just kind of consider... Sitter, let's, let's go with the imagery that Jesus is giving us here. He, he's the one who set this up. I'm going to my father's house. There are many rooms in that house. I am going to prepare a place for you. And my mind immediately goes to, to a man getting his home ready to, to bring his, his children in, to bring his wife home. Maybe they've bought a new house and you got to set up all the artwork. You got to hang things up. You got to put furniture in the right place. You got to make sure there are curtains that are the right color. Everything's got to be situated. If you've ever moved to a new Apartment or house or anything like that, you know all the the, the details and the work that go into that, all the thoughts you have, and, and for so often, for so much of it, at some point you just get to a point of frustration where you are like, I don't even, I don't even like artwork. I don't even care where this stuff goes anymore. Put the bed in the living room. It's where the fireplace. Let's just make it all. Let's put it at the center of the house, right here. Jesus, he takes great care to prepare a place for his disciples. I think that's, I think that's worth noting. He, he, he measures once. He hammers once. He knows where it's all going to be. He puts all the things in the room. Maybe they're not things that you would have chosen for yourself, but they're things that, that he knows <laughs> you would like. This is, this is the kind of person Jesus is, and this is the kind of care that he has for his disciples, that he would go, he would prepare a place for them. It's stunning because this isn't just where the Father lives. That would be, that's an incredible revelation. It's not just the Father's house, as in this is where he lives. It's not just where the Son lives or is going to live. Uh, this, this house is where his disciples will live. I mean do you, do you do you see that? I mean that that is just unbelievable. Have you read the Bible? Have you read the Old Testament where the pillar of fire and, and the cloud of smoke by day were leading God's people through the through the wilderness and, and now and now we get to dwell in his house. Uh, it's, it's it's unbelievable. It's an incredible grace that the Lord has given to his people, and Jesus is revealing here to his disciples. Another thing to bear in mind is that the, the father, the father's not, he, he's not apathetic about who's living in his house either. Maybe you, you kind of divorce things in your mind as you read passages like this, and And it's the father's house, but we read that as though the father's not living there. We read that as though the father has no authority or jurisdiction over his house, or as if it's some sort of like beach house where he's generally just not around. But you get to stay there. Bear in mind, the father is the one who sent the son to initiate this whole process. The the son is merely doing his father's will. It is because of the father's love that he has sent his son, that his son might now bring in more people into his house. Jesus is not sneaking us in through some upstairs window. Uh, He's not waiting until the lights are out and nobody's watching. Uh, we, we We are invited to the Father's house through his son, Jesus so that's the where. Jesus gives us the where. And he also then gives us the way in verse 4. Jesus says, you know the way to where I am going. And, and I love Thomas. Don't we all love Thomas? The man gets a bad rap for doubting. But you got to admit, the guy is honest. All the disciples here are nodding their heads. I mean, you can kind of see the picture. They're just, yeah, 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 Father's house. Got it, got it. Okay, we're going too. Yeah, yeah. And Thomas just stops and he says, I don't know what these guys are nodding their heads about. I don't know where you're going. I don't, I don't know. And not only do I not know where, I therefore don't know the way. I can't get there. Am I the only one? Am I the only one? Peter's like, yeah, I felt the same way. They, they don't know. And Jesus says, well, let me, let me explain to you the way. <laughs> and then Jesus says it in verse 6. He says, I am. You notice that use. I am, right? The divine name of God. Jesus has been doing this throughout John's gospel. I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus, he he says it so clearly. I am the way. You don't know the way. I tell you, you know the way there. Thomas says, I don't know the way. Jesus says, no, I am the way. You know me, you know the way. Because I am, I am he. I am the way. Jesus is the way. He is the path to God when all others are dead ends. Jesus is the truth. There, there is nothing more for you to know. When everything else is lies, he remains the Not just true or truthful, he is the truth. Jesus is the life. He is our very being. He is our reason to exist. He is the way that we exist. When everything else that this world offers is just death. John has been building up to this moment throughout throughout his gospel in chapter One, especially, he sets in motion some of these very ideas. If you look at chapter 1, verse 18, John says of Jesus, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. There's no other way to know God. There's no other way to God. But Jesus has revealed him. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the truth of God. And then again in chapter 1, but verse 4, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the life. I mean, this is such a profound reply. It's one that we've heard so many times, probably, maybe gotten on a coffee mug at some point in your life, as you just kind of gloss over it. You don't really think about what this means. I mean, this is a profound statement. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. It's a profound statement that is also profoundly Exclusive follows this up in verse 6 by saying that no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ is the only access given to the Father. He's it. He is the door with a capital D. Let's talk about just the exclusivity of Jesus here for a minute. You know, this, this concept is pretty offensive uh, to the world in general. That, that, that Jesus would say this, but especially that anyone would believe it and live their lives in accordance with this and, and consequently also then urge others to do the same. I, I'm always kind of fascinated when I get stuck behind uh, cars, you know, with those bumper stickers that say coexist. <clears throat> and I always wonder, like, how did you choose which religions to represent on the coexist sticker? Like, which ones did you exclude? Which ones did you just kind of leave off the back? And I recognize that all the little symbols kind of work because they sort of reflect, like, letters in the alphabet, and that's convenient. But at the same time, it does, by definition, exclude some. Right? You know, your Molech worshiper, for example, who's used to sacrificing his children, he's not going to ever get reflected on that sticker. Right, at some point, even the world has to acknowledge, oh, there are some things that we might exclude there may be i don 't know some definition to the wideness of this gate that i 'm reflecting on my bumper sticker. Um, the world is hypocritical uh, concerning this sort of thing in, in a lot of other ways. I mean the the number of people who um, who will constantly you know Rage against Christians for wanting to, to see laws enacted, for example, that in some ways like, reflect what they believe about their Creator and how the Lord has made the world and, and what that means. Oh, let's not bring religion into this. You know, as, that's often kind of the refrain. Never mind that, that being opposed to any sort of religious view is, is literally a religious view. You know, I mean, there's, there's only. You know, we. The world doesn't like the idea of exclusion or anything being exclusive, let alone the way to God, but, but it's unavoidable, isn't it? I mean, on some level, we're all, this is the world that we're living in. We, we, have, to, we, we have to adapt uh, to, to him, and we can't just kind of turn a blind eye uh, to the way things are. The exclusivity of Christ is offensive to the world. Bottom line, but to Christians, it is life-giving. I mean, for 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 believers, you, you, if you're a believer in this room, you know what I'm talking about. The exclusivity of Jesus. That that in reality is our that's our hope. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Peter is giving this speech, and he he tells all the people present that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see that there there is salvation. There is salvation. Is, Is there a more glorious truth than that? And it is found in no one else but Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Oh man, there there is such hope there. There is life in those words. Because there is life in the exclusivity of Jesus. Jesus. He is the only way, but that means that he is the way to the Father. Now, why does John spend so much time? Why does Jesus spend so much time elaborating on Christ's relationship with the Father as a means of comforting their hearts? I think it's because of this. Our ultimate problem I mean, the, the defining problem for every human being who has ever been born is that we do not have access to the Father. We in our natural state don't have access to the father this is what we are born into because we have inherited adam and eve's sin and guilt is that we lack access we can't open the door we can't just waltz into the house and it's not even just a matter solely of belief as if we're not believing the right things or we don't know the right things Uh, You remember, in verse 1, Jesus' initial response to the disciples is, believe in God, believe also in me. We're not talking about just a general belief in some sort of deity. Which is oftentimes, sadly, kind of how people, uh, how their testimonies sound. Well, how'd you become a Christian? Well, I believe in God. Well, that's... That's only, half the, that's only half the story. Right? James 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There, there's a problem with merely just knowing facts about God. The problem is that you can know those facts, but, but in, in our hardness of heart, you know what we do with those facts? We suppress them. We ignore them, we redefine them, we consign them to the, the waste bin of our hearts. This is, this is Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 1. If you turn with me there, Romans 1 verse 18 through 21. <clears throat> this is why, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed. This, is, this right here, is what initiates the wrath of God against God. Sinners. The wrath of God, he says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, you know what needs to be known about God. Few of us, if any, actually need a primer that there is a a God who has created all things and to whom we owe our allegiance. Now, you may think that doesn't come naturally to you, but I'm telling you it is only because after years of hardness of heart, you you have pushed that to the closet. That's what Paul is saying here is that we suppress this truth. Verse 19, what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, we, are without excuse. For although they knew God, you see that? They knew God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The solution is, is not just knowing God or knowing things about God. That, that, that is not enough to save anybody. In fact, what Paul says here is that that is only sufficient to damn everybody. We see the gravity of this. We have no access to God on our own. This is, this is our state. We're accountable for what we've done with this knowledge, which now means that we are also, therefore, liable for judgment for rebellion against this God whom we should know. But Jesus, <laughs> I mean, Jesus steps in. He, the Father, sent Him to us that we might be redeemed that our sin might be atoned for. Even the sin of the unrighteousness of suppressing the truth and insisting on the lie about who God is and what he's done and whether or not he is worthy of all of our praise and worship and admiration. Even that sin, Jesus came to atone for if we will simply acknowledge it, hand it over to him and find redemption that comes through Christ alone. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful, it's glorious. You're in one moment as hopeless as you can possibly be. But the Lord intervenes. He, He stepped into time and history and space, and he himself rewrote the whole thing. Through his son, Jesus, we are redeemed by him alone, And so, therefore, what Jesus is getting at here is not just believe in God. Hey, know some general things about God. Your theology needs to be better. It's not what he's saying. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Because belief in God, apart from the context of believing in and knowing Christ, is worthless. It gets you nowhere. It gets you nowhere. It's a matter not of general knowledge and theology, theological knowledge, philosophical knowledge. No, we're talking about personal knowledge of the person of Jesus, who is the revelation with a capital R of God. Jesus says it right there in in verse 9, that second half. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the revelation of God. It's belief in God in the context of believing in Christ that that he is pointing us to. To know Jesus is to know the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. This is a longing that is, is throughout the pages of the Old Testament. You think of Moses asking, Lord, I, show me your glory. I want to see you. Moses never gets to fully glimpse the Lord. He, he sees his back. He sees the, the trail of glory behind him. But here in Jesus, we see God face to face. And at the cross we see his glory on full display. That that is our hope. Remember again the words of John chapter one, verse eighteen. Where, Je- where, where John says this of Jesus. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus. He has made him known. We're not meant to merely know things about God. We're meant to know God himself. Do you know him? Have you seen him? And maybe a better way to rephrase that question, because this is the same question you understand. Do you know, have you seen Jesus? Do you know Jesus. The disciples here, they're troubled by their inability to follow Jesus for the time being. But what Jesus offers them is comfort in the certainty that they will follow Christ later. And so their grim prospects yield to a path that is forged not by their grit and determination, but by Jesus' own sacrifice to them. He is the way. These disciples are looking down the barrel of being homeless and practically orphaned, and yet Jesus says, you come to my Father's house with me. I'm coming to get you. So what does this leave them to do in the meantime? How do they live in this in-between moment where Jesus is going to leave them, and then when Jesus has left them and and is waiting to return, what do you do in that span of time? Just kind of cling to this truth? Yes. But what happens inevitably is what Jesus explains and expresses here. And there's so many verbs that Jesus throws at us all at once in the back half of this portion of John 14. He says, okay, immediately, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. But then he starts to point out that the only way to know God is to know Jesus. The only way to see God is to see Jesus. And what comes of this is more action, more verbs, doing, and also asking. The disciples, therefore, and we see it in verses 12 through 14, he says, Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The disciples now are tasked with bearing witness to the Father through the works that he's called them to do just as Jesus spent his entire ministry doing his Father's works and bearing witness to him. The disciples, therefore, they're, they're picking up Christ's mantle. And not only picking it up, but Jesus himself says, exceeding the works that he has done. And he, he offers some qualifiers here, one in particular. He says, whatever you do in my name, whatever you ask in my name... And for us, sometimes that's just kind of an appendage we throw at the end of prayers. But, but let's think about what this means. Jesus is not just saying, whatever you want, the Lord will surely, I mean, the Father's kind of like you know stuck to you now. He's just got to do what you say. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says, whatever you ask in my name, in other words, whatever you ask that is in accordance with my character, whatever you ask or do that is in accordance with my will, this is what my Father will delight to do for you And through you in this world as my witnesses. So, what do they do then? They wait with a blessed hope of Jesus' return. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, says this that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's where the Lord has left his disciples. That is the the source and I think you see the very reason why their hearts should not be troubled, because Jesus goes to prepare a place for them. And that means there's just so many implications that flow from that. And Jesus would bring them to be where He is with His father, in his father's house. And so in the meantime, let's look ahead to that. And here's how you can live with hope rather than despair. What does this mean for us? I think of a few implications, three in particular. We'll, we'll get through these quickly. One, Christians must be informed by heavenly expectation. I mean, I, I think that this is, this is really the pattern. Brad and I were talking about this actually this morning. It, it seems like really the pattern of the New Testament, the pattern of the Bible, is that we would look forward to, with the eyes of faith, the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus, that we only have a glimpse of, a taste of now. We we must be informed by heavenly expectation, which means that we we are meant to live and pray with eager longing for Christ and His return. Now uh, you've heard that expect you've heard that uh, statement, um, you know, being uh, or it's a criticism, right? To be too heavenly minded for any earthly good, uh, and and yeah, maybe on some level, in some way, that's sort of true, but. But, but what I am much more concerned about, and what I, think, what I think we, especially as American Christians, need to be mindful of, is that it is very possible, in fact very easy, to be too earthly-minded for any heavenly good. Where our perspective is just so small, and it is so short-sighted, and it has no concept of time. I've got young children, you know how difficult it is for young children to understand time. Have you ever done that? Have you ever witnessed that? Yesterday we went to this place and we enjoyed the beach or whatever. No, that was a summer ago. That was last year. We did that last year. You don't understand how yesterday works. That's not time, right? Well, when are, when are we going? Are we going, are, when are we going uh, to dinner? Oh, we'll go in an hour. Okay, you know, five minutes later. Is it, are we, is it time to go? No, we have to do uh, like 12 more of these. And, and th- but then, we'll, yes, then we will go. Why is it that when it comes to so many worldly things, we're always looking at our watch, but when it comes to eternity, when it comes to the glory of walking hand in hand with the Lord, we throw our watches out the window. Why is that? Why don't don't we look at our watches in anticipation of the Lord? You know, one of the things Jesus even taught us to pray is that his kingdom, the Lord's kingdom, would come. It's one of the main things that Jesus included in the Lord's prayer. And I think Christians, I think we, I think Crosspoint, I'm sure Mitri too, we would do well to refocus ourselves on seeing the Lord's kingdom come. And not just like on earth, fleshed out in different ways, but I mean literally that we would anticipate and look forward to all that Jesus has for us in his Father's house. Number two, Christians want to know God as their Father through Christ alone. We want to know God as our Father. And that happens through Jesus and knowing him alone. There is a great privilege of knowing God as our Father. Do you realize that? When you read the Old Testament, uh, very very rarely is God referred to as a Father. Not directly, not like in personal conversation. But, but Jesus, because of his death and burial and resurrection, because of the life that is ours in him, I mean, it transforms everything about how we relate to God. In fact, we can call God and are, are told to address God as our Father. I mean, just what a, what a privilege. What, what a privilege. And, and maybe for some of you, that's maybe a difficult privilege to embrace because your perspective on what a father is or looks like is is warped and skewed by this world, as undoubtedly all of our perspectives on being a father are. But I want you to look to the Lord and understand that, that he is the model father. All other fathers exist be- because of him. I mean, they, they're meant to point to him. So don't, don't let earthly perspectives taint your picture of his fatherhood. You can, you can call him your father. You can look to him as your father. And, of course, this is done through Christ alone. He is primary. No one and no thing else will do. There is, there is no way to know the Lord as our father but by Christ, our older brother. You see the, the beauty and simplicity and gravity, the weight of this? That should change everything about how you relate to the Lord. He's not a taskmaster. He's, he's not an apathetic, uh, uninvolved, uh, distant, despotic king. While certainly scripture refers to him as a king in various ways, uh, we, we as God's people can call him our father. Oh man, let's, let's take every advantage of that. Well, what's holding you back? Why, why would you not see him that way? Number three, finally, Christians need not be troubled by this world. Uh, Don't forget, this is how Jesus began this whole discourse. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, and here's why. Christian, you you have nothing to be troubled by in this world. I I think it sometimes feels like uh, the the absence of Jesus is, is maybe painfully obvious to us in different ways, different times, different things you see in the news, different things happening in your own life, we are at times made acutely aware that Jesus is not here. His will, his ways are not treasured and valued in this world. Sometimes they're not treasured and valued in your own heart. And that can cause some real despair. Uh, certainly a lot, of, a lot of anxiety. But we, we must remember where Christ has gone. And and we need to remember why he has gone and what he is doing and why he will return, which is that he has gone to prepare a place for us and he has sworn to return when everything is ready and bring us to be with him in his father's house. Because Jesus, Jesus, he alone is the way and the truth and the life. Let me pray. Father, we, uh, we, we want to we cherish that, that name, Father. We, we want to come to you as our Father. And of course, on our own we cannot, but we, we know through Jesus that we can approach you with hope. We can walk through this life with great hope and comfort. Our hearts need not be troubled because of Jesus. Because of what he has done, where he has gone, and the way that he has made possible for us by faith. Lord, would you cause us to walk hand in hand with him with joy, to honor and glorify your name and all that we do. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.